Welcome to the Point Noted Podcast with your host, Johnny B, and co-host who shows up whenever he wants to, former NFL player, Rashad Barksdale. It's raw, unfiltered, and no topic is off-limit. We talk sports, entertainment, culture, and a whole lot of random shit. Let's get to the point. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. This is the point of the podcast, and you're hanging out with your host, Johnny B. Uh, so we got something a little different for you today, man. Most of our interviews, it's a back and forth. I'm doing a lot of questions. We're having a conversation. Uh, but I got this uh, I got this guy on today, man, a really good dude. Uh, his name is Kia. Uh, you guys are going to get a chance to, to meet and listen to Kia talk. So, And the key word there is listen to Kia talk uh, because I'm actually just going to kick back. I have my glass of wine with me. I'm relaxed. Uh, you know, we're just going to let Kia talk. Kia's got a great story. He's got an amazing storytelling ability. Uh, so just enjoy it, relax. Uh, you will hear my voice come in and out, but for the most part, I'm just gonna let Kia talk, man. And this is gonna be one of few or one of a couple that we do with Kia. Uh, the man's got a lot to uh, to talk about. Uh, I can't wait to pick his brain about soccer, uh, his coaching method. Uh, but for today, we're just gonna focus more on his background. You know how he came from Iran to making to the United States and what it was like growing up. Uh, you know, growing up as an Iranian kid in the United States that doesn't speak any lick of English. Uh, you know, the language barrier. Uh, you know, seeing America for the first time and, you know, the cultural shock that it went through. Uh, so, just kind of give you guys a heads up of what we're in for today. So, just enjoy. Like I said, I talked to Kia. He's an amazing guy. Positive. is just full of positivity and energy. Uh, you know, I'm just hoping he rubs some of that off for me. So, uh, so enjoy it. Relax. Kick back. Uh, grab, I don't know, grab a glass of wine. Do what you do to relax. And uh, let's enjoy the conversation with Kia. All right? I got a special guest in the house today, man. We, we should have a fun one today. Uh, I got my man, uh, Kia Zogoraini. I think I said it wrong, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I did the best I could, but I think somebody else says uh, you can call him uh, Kia Nuish. Or I just go Nuish. by Kia. Kia, there <laughs> we go. We just go by Kia, man. Um, hey, Kia, how you doing, my man? I'm doing great. I'm really um, appreciative to be on your show. Absolutely, man. So for those who can't, you know, you guys can't really tell right now, but um so i'm on zoom with kia and i'm doing audio and kia's doing video so it's pretty unique that i get to see all his facial and body expression and language doing his whole conversation but he really just has to look at my logo uh the point of the logo in front of his screen and just assume uh <laughs> that's me <laughs> you know at least, okay. for, at least for that man what's going on you uh you said you in houston I'm in Houston visiting some my brother-in-law. There's um he's got a ranch here. There's nine adults and eleven dogs. Ooh, nine <laughs> adults. Okay, so we gotta go through this. Uh, we gotta go. So, but um, so you said nine adults. Uh, right. I'm guessing those are not, uh, you know, two uh two parents and then a bunch of kids. No, so no, no, Break no. It no. Down. So my it's my brother-in-law and his okay. wife. They have five dogs. Um, we drove here because we have three dogs. <laughs> so his and his three sons. One of them has two dogs, and one of them has one dog. Oh, the other God. one doesn't doesn't have doesn't have any dogs. But his wife is here. So <laughs> so there's nine adults and eleven dogs. It's extremely interesting. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. So there and their 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 dogs are like there's a couple of hunting dogs and Jeez. like they have they have five dogs and there's you can hear them. There's two hunting dogs, dogs, and they have they have three like terriers that 
Yorkshire Terrier. So there's all sorts of dogs here. It's crazy. <laughs> so is the house even clean or is the house kind of like messy? No, they have a beautiful house. No, no, no. They have a beautiful house. It's okay. unbelievable. I mean, they actually get along really good. It's We're all dog people. So good. we understand them that we understand which ones are alpha, which ones. And they're hunting dogs, you know, they're in here, this Houston. I mean, yesterday I was on a Zoom call with a guy from London and, and <laughs> from London Real. And I look outside and we drove here. There's a snake coming out of my wheel. It's like, because it was a storm here night before. And I looked, seriously, I looked outside. There was a snake, like a big six foot snake came out of my wheel. Kind of got on the ground and just went on the gas. I took a picture of it. I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and here, you know, here everybody has guns and they're packing and they need to. <laughs> you just, wow. they're, they're, uh, and you know, you and I talked briefly this morning and you kind of give me right. a rundown as well. So I'm just going to let you start uh, from the beginning because you were born and raised uh, to about right. teenage, I believe, in uh, Iran. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I tell this story a lot because, of, you know, I was blessed to become a professional soccer player in America okay. in, 1980, in 1983. I was the youngest, shortest, lightest person to sign a professional contract in America. Okay. But my story is a little different because I tell that to all the kids. You know, I was, I grew up in Iran. I was raised, I was born in 1965 in Iran. Okay. I grew up, I grew up in a you know, in a very wealthy family. My father had one of the largest construction companies in Iran. Mm. And, you know, um, he was always gone because he worked on big major projects. He was gone three, four, five months at a time. Right. So I remember, you know, growing up, you know, uh, just, you know, a lot of traveling my, because of my father's job having a lot of maids, drivers, you know, but I never see my father I, because he was gone a lot. So I, now that I look back, you know, why did I, you know, what, what was my path? Why did I turn who I am? And I look back, well, when my father was gone a lot and at five, my mother got cancer. Mm. My mother had breast cancer. So they went on Europe for treatment. So now my mom and dad are gone three months, six months at a time. Wow. So I you were how old at this, you were how old at this point? I was five and six. Five years I was old. Five okay. years old. So yeah. So I remember spending the time when they were gone with me and the ball, which I wasn't allowed because we had a really big home. I wasn't allowed to own a real soccer ball. I actually didn't own my first real soccer ball until I came to America. I had tennis balls, ping pong balls, I rolled up socks, whatever I could to just be with a ball and next to a wall. Mm. My brother, I had one brother, was a younger brother, and, you know, I'll tell the story later, but he died at 27 from brain cancer. I've actually lost my whole family to, to cancer. Wow. Um, he was 27, so he didn't like playing with me when I was growing up. I was three years older than him. He liked to destroy things, and he was a genius. I mean, he went to Columbia. You know, he aced his ACTs, you know. He was just... <laughs> he, <laughs> was, he, I mean, I'm 5'5". Five, five. He was my younger brother, where he was six foot tall, and wow. he had like straight hair. So my father was a tall man. My mother was 4'10". And so I was, I was the firstborn, you know, so my, my father was a patriarch, you know, and I remember him, you know, being very wealthy and he spoke and everyone listened. He took care of, I remember his story, you know, his father died at four 
So he was a breadwinner for his family from the time he was five. He had to make money. So I learned my hard work and my work ethic from my father. Because he always taught me, you know, a man works hard and he provides. So, you know, <laughs> working hard and, you know, I coached, I coached, you know, 40 hours on a weekend. You know, I can do just hard, working hard is in my DNA. And I got that from my dad. So, you know, we, I was being raised in Iran and I wasn't allowed to play soccer, but in the streets. So I watched it from the window. And I was in love with the game. And I'm actually the reverse of every American kid. Because here in America, we start playing soccer at four, five, six years old. Right. And then we learn. Then we learn the strategies and tactics and everything else. I'm actually the reverse. Although I am a product of American soccer. You know, um, so I moved to the, you know, we, I, I was growing up in Iran. I wasn't allowed to play in the streets, you know, because we were wealthy. So I watched from the high rise and I played from the high rise in my head with the kids. Mm -hmm. And I watched TV. Soccer was on TV all the time. So I watched it constantly. So I understood the game. And one, when I was five and six years old, you know, right when my mom had cancer, my, you know, my mom had cancer. My dad took us on a Europe trip because we were going for the treatment for my mom. Well, we flew into Spain. So I saw Barcelona. He took me to Barcelona. And then I went and saw, in, we went to Germany. I saw Bayern Munich. And then we went to London to my mom's treatment. We went there last because we had to stay there for a couple of weeks. So she had to get chemo. So my dad took me to the Man United game, which was actually in London. They were playing away. So ever since I was five and six years old, you know, um, you know, I, years ago I had a, had the luxury of meeting Dan Quayle, which he wrote Talent Code. It's a great book, and he talks about that talent and why is talent, you know, how is talent formed? You know, why certain places have talent, create the best talent in the world? And, like, there's a school in, you know, in Jamaica that makes all the runners. Mm -hmm. Or there's a place in Russia. Why is that, you know? And he said, you know, he talks about passion. That's important, passion, and passion needs ignition. I think that trip, I got my ignition. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I had the ignition that I love. I fell in love. So ever since I was five or six years old, I don't know, when I would go to these games and I loved the game, I would daydream that a scout would see me. Mm. Or today, I'm literally, I'm sitting in Barcelona. I'm daydreaming that they pick a person in the stands right. to go play with them. And I would, as I'm watching the game, I'm daydreaming that they picked me and I'm playing with them. You know, when I played in my high rise by myself with a tennis ball, we had a long hallway, which was marble floors. So I would go one direction and I would hit a ball against a wall and then I would go the other way. I'd be the other team. So I would constantly play two teams. I'd be both of them. <laughs> but, and I would, in my head, I would broadcast it mm, right. <laughs> like it's on TV. Like it's on TV, and absolutely. And, well, and I did that now that I look back is because I didn't feel missing my parents. Mm. I played, I played constantly with a ball, you know, because when you play all the time and I'm really hype, you know, I'm, if you meet me, I'm, I'm super hyper. <laughs> I, I sleep like three or four hours a day only for 30 years. I, my metabolism is through the roof. You know, I burn calories at rest. It's just man, you're a different super man. high. Well, I'm right. super high. I'm, I'm everything in my body. I like I, I'm 55 years old. I don't need to warm up. I can just 
So boom, go. Yeah, my fast twitch muscle. Yeah, I can't even do that. If I go out right now, stop <laughs> running, I'm done. No, well, so yeah, I mean, the Lord's kind of made me that way, and and I think indoor soccer. So here I am, you know, I moved, you know, we were really wealthy. I'm going through a revolution. I'm actually very studious. I read a lot. And I used to, you know, have get into deep, deep conversations with my father. I remember I was seven. You know, I asked them, what does nothing mean? How can you, how can you have nothing without having something? Right. You have to take something away. Right. So I'm having this conversation with him. Then I asked them. I remember he was gone. He was gone for like three months. Like he'd just come home and I was really excited to talk to him. But I think I really frustrated the heck out of him. And I asked him like, so dad, would I be a Muslim if I wasn't raised here? You know, if I was born in Africa, would I still be a Muslim? Because my father practiced Islam. Right. And I learned my faith from him. Right, of course. So he said, you know, he said, well, I really frustrated him because I just asked him about the nothing question. Then I brought up the religion and he goes, well, why don't you go study all of them and decide for yourself? Mm. Because I asked him, isn't, isn't that brainwashing when your parents pick your religion? And he said, well, just go study it and pick for yourself. And that's exactly what happened in my life. Mm. You know, from the age of seven to about 40, I studied all of them. And at 40, I became a born again Christian. I accepted Christ, my Lord and Savior, and I understood the story, and I studied the human story. I, I read Joseph Campbell and all the comparative mythology and all the religions in the world through my 20s as I was a soccer player. So I didn't go to this. Let me take you back to my coming to America. So I'm going through this revolution, which is crazy. You know, I'm seeing our own people getting shot and. They're talking about, you know, fighting the monarchy and the Shah and how the religious leaders were talking that really, we want freedom. We want freedom of our speech. Mm. And, you know, my teachers were saying, you know, if you die for Lord, you're going to get 72 virgins. And, wow, that's you a know, lot. My yeah, and the, the <laughs> sol soldiers only have 10,000 bullets. There's 10,001 of us, you know. So I remember being at school and then we would all go to demonstration and everybody, I mean, millions of people were shouting the energy and all of a sudden the soldiers would show up and just start shooting. Wow. That's and crazy. I see, I, I hear, I mean, it took me years that if you ever heard a bullet go by you, it sounds like a bee, like, and, and hitting your body, it sounds a lot like a watermelon cracking a watermelon because I, yeah. I remember running I remember running and people dropping next mm. to me left and right and they wow. were just getting shot or the helicopters coming from above and they would just shoot and your own soldiers so I lived through a year of that and there was demonstration and just seeing people get shot and yeah I mean my, my teacher was really grooming me to be anti-west to escape and go to become a, my, my teacher was grooming me to be a PLO fighter. PLO they wanted fighter. me to say, well, yeah, be a, they told me, I remember her, she was, she was a young teacher and you never believe what book she gave me to read. What? <laughs> the first book she gave me to read was Communist Manifest, which is insane for a Muslim, but that'll tell you what a false religion it is. In the name of Islam, my teacher had me read the Communist Manifest to become a freedom fighter mm -hmm. for Islam. 
how yeah. messed up is that? <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, and then, you know, when you think I, about it, I'm sure there's a lot of kids like you in that school that were getting fed the same materials. Oh, sure. I mean, my whole school was. We were, we were cleaning machine guns in fifth grade. <laughs> that's, that's not a school. <laughs> no, we, we, we had to clean machine guns, and they were teaching us how to make Molotov cocktails. You know, wow. uh, bottle, bottle, put soap, styrofoam, nail, and here, just throw it to the soldiers. And we had to make them. And I mean, I remember making them and they were giving them to the freedom fighters. And so it was civil war and my parents didn't want me to do that. But my couple of my buddies were, I remember sneaking out. We had curfew for about six months. You couldn't go out at 9 PM and military curfew. And I remember sneaking out, mm. getting chased by soldiers, you know, shots fired. <laughs> just, and you're just a kid, you know, no. trying to go to your buddy's house. Um, so, but my dad, we were very wealthy. And when the, when the government fell, there was no, it was all militia. So in the town he was at, one of the militias, you know, threw him in jail. And because anybody had money, they were saying you were shot or executing you. Mm. So overnight, you know, he knew that it was not safe anymore. So he came to, you know, he escaped. He came to our town and goes, we're leaving. So in a black market, he cashed. 200 grand, which is really $2 million if you went to bank. And we bought four tickets on a plane for $10,000 a piece. $10,000, which is really, you know, it should have been like $500 tickets on black right. market. So he bought four tickets from me, my brother, my mom, and him. And overnight, we flew. We left. Island. Island. We, went right. to, we went to France. And he had found out that my teachers were grooming me to escape. My friend had come and told them that, hey, you know, they're talking to him. And I was considering it, you know, because my parents were Western, have their money, you know. And, and then we, that's it. We came to France and I was really upset because, you know, what the heck? You know, I was anti-West. Mm -hmm. You know, they were teaching us to be anti-West and, you know, Muslim. And then I came to France. I actually really liked it. It was so free and it's so – I can't explain um, – I don't think like th those people are, and, and, I mean, I haven't been back in 40 some years, but the, 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 what they teach you over there, it's all false religion. And you're, you, you, you live in a lie. You totally right. live in a lie. Right. And, and you think you're living for God, but you're not. <laughs> right. You know, what they're telling you it's God, it's not really God. Really and that's God. exactly what happened when the religious people took over and they, you know, overthrew the Shah. It completely became the other way. Mm. The mullahs and then I'm, you know, all my my family's property, everything was confiscated by the by the mullahs, you know. Mm. And mullahs are the religious leaders. So basically, the religious leaders became the monarchy, and they had all the money and power, which is what's now going on in Iran for forty some years. So the people right. are still under oppression, and it's even worse than it was. So, you know, we came and we were in France. For about two months, two and a half months, my father went to the consulate every day because the plan was to go to Arizona because I had a cousin there. And my mother had cancer. So one day, finally, my dad was at the consulate. There was a bomb threat. And there was, the guy like gave us two-week visa. So we landed in New York. And I remember my cousin came and picked us up. The next day, we spent one day in New York, which to me was huge because... You know, when, you, when I was growing up in Iran, you know, everybody talked about, you got to have Big Mac. You got to have Big Mac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So when we landed in New York, my, we're in the cab. I'm like, I want a Big Mac. We couldn't find a Big Mac McDonald's. Mm. He took us to Burger King. So I had a double Whopper. A double Whopper. You, know? you always remember, the, you always remember that one, right? Oh, yeah. Well, and, and look, like, I mean, in Iran, you know, my father was really wealthy. I remember we were young and he brings the first um, big screen TV. You know, brings it to our house. Mm. And everybody, you know, the maids put it up and he's like, oh, proud of it. And he's got the remote control. And I was like, dude, my son, my brother, like, I don't understand that being all proud. There's only two channels we got in America here. You know, why do you need remote control? <laughs> There's only two channels. So when I came here and I went to my first hotel and I turned the TV on and it was hundreds. And hundreds. I, I literally did not want to sleep. Right. I was like, oh my God. You know, right. there's so many channels. So that was the first being struck by America's you know, Okay, so let me, ask, let me ask you this. Yeah. What did you know about America before you came? Besides what your teachers were trying to feed you with the whole uh, nothing. crap. I knew, I, so knew, nothing. I knew, well, I knew nothing about it other than uh, it's capitalism and death to America. I didn't know why death is to America, but I remember that's what I was told. So I was like, didn't want to be here at first. You know, I told my parents, like, I... But, you know, I was young, you know, my, you know, you're not going to, your dad would kick your butt, you know, so right. you're like, of my father was a patriarch, you know, you don't mess with him. So I was like, okay, you know, God forbid he gets mad at you, you know, it's like, okay, we do what he wants. And okay, this is it. We come here and, but we have no plans. We have nothing. We have no home. And, you know, we finally come to Arizona and he's like, okay, you, you know, you're going to high school, but I was supposed to go to like eighth grade. I don't even speak English. My dad was like, it's land of, it's a, America. It's a land of opportunity. You need to get to college fast. Right. I'm like, dad, I don't even speak English. <laughs> so, right. so I'm not going to do I that. I mean, I, I, mean I, I came here in August and like a week later, I got to go to high school. So my, my cousin was, you know, I was dating this drummer girl and she had a brother and it went, went to the school. So they kind of say, oh, Greg, take care of this kid. <laughs> so I, I go to I mean I go to school I have I don't speak English I I mean in, in Iran you went to school six days a week okay really? I I said yeah I went to school 7 a.m to 4 p.m I mean my math was over the chart you know over there you know you go six days a week you're in the same class with my table was with four other kids and we had lines on our desk so you don't cross it because I shared a desk with four people. And, you know, you know, elbow crosses, my space, you know, <laughs> I wasn't used to. So I go to the high school and it's orientation day and I have this schedule in my hand. And I have no idea what it means. All I knew was like 119 was my classroom. So right. I go to the first class and I'm sitting there and the bell rings and everyone leaves. I'm like, I'm not used to that because I'm used to, I just teachers coming in. Okay. So I just sit there. I sat there. So the teacher comes to me, he's like, hey, I think she was asking me what you're doing. <laughs> so I just showed him my schedule and she's like, right. hey, you got to go there. So, bro, I was so lost. I mean, so talk wait, about. But how did you do though that first day being in orientation in class, not understanding English at all? How did you admit out what he was saying? Or was somebody in? Uh, I was. I had no idea what was going on. I was completely shocked. I was. I kind of figured it out on my own. You know, like okay, where well, I got to move classes. Oh, I get it. I have a locker. I got to go there. You know, and the second day, football players threw me in a garbage can. <laughs> what? Yeah. 
Yeah, football no players. Reason, just randomly being bullies, huh? Well, well, here I am. You know, I'm the young. I mean, I I look like I was in. I literally look like I'm in the fifth grade. Mm. I mean, Iranian kid. You know, I'm dark skin. I'm probably dressed geeky. You know, not like the rest <laughs> of them. You know, my parents. I mean, like so. Till I learned that you got to wear five hundred ones and polo shirts. You know, it took me a while to get that. Yeah. <laughs> to fit in. Yeah, that's that's a but, brand you got to wear in high school to fit in. Well, which is actually a great story, which I tell this story a lot to the kids. You know, my I got thrown in a garbage can, and I was mm. screaming because I've never been. I've never been. Um, I, when we were in Germany once, a kid we were at a pool, and a blonde haired blue eyed boy just spit right in my face, and I don't know what he said to me, but I knew he didn't like me. <laughs> so I kind of looked at him. I was like, okay, that's kind of disgusting. So right. that's a, that's as much as I've ever dealt with violence. So no one's ever really bullied me or anything. But when these four kids picked me up and threw me in a garbage can, I mean, I was terrified. So the first day I was really scared. The second day when they came to me, and this is a story like, like look, my, my parents went to Europe and they would come back. They would bring a ton of toys, mm. ton of stuff. One of the things they brought back was Sports Illustrated. Well, you know, the middle finger in Iran is the same as a thumbs up. So it was, so it was a picture of an MLB. Someone had hit a home run. They all had their thumbs up. And I had this, this Sports Illustrated with all these kids with thumbs up. So I, I took that to school like it was porn. You know, everybody's like, oh, my God, look at these kids. Right. You know, they, they're having their thumbs up, you know. Wait, so, so when, in when Iran? The second day when in they, I, yeah, in, in Iran. Yeah, in Iran, thumbs, thumbs up. up? Is the same means, as a, the same means the same finger. as the middle finger that we have here. Absolutely. Oh yeah, shit! Absolutely. No kidding. Yeah, and so when I when I got the second day when they're coming at me to do that, I put my thumbs up at them, and they're like, "Dude, are you stupid? We're throwing you in a garbage can. You're giving us a thumbs up." Right. And I was laughing like I was having this big grin in my face and going, "Who's stupid?" So and one of them really felt sorry for me. They're like, "Hey man, leave him alone. He's just a kid." You know, and I'm only two thumbs up. <laughs> so I'm going to start using that. I'm going to start using that thumbs up now. <laughs> so know. they stopped bullying me. They, they, they really, they, you know, they, um, you know, they stopped bullying me. They kind of left me alone, but they still like, because, so I came here, remember, I came here in August and then the Iran hostages happened. Remember? Mm-hmm. The American hostages. So. Right. There was all those, the whole country wore those t-shirts with Mickey Mouse, with middle finger, hey, Iran, or I was being called Ayatollah. (laughs) (laughs) So, and they all would come to me and I would walk down down the hallways with my two thumbs up, like holding them up straight up with big green in my face. I've always treated every adversity in my life with smile in my Mm. face, you know, big smile on my face. You can't. If you look at my Twitter, I mean, it says you can't break us, but it really started with you can't break me, YCBM. You can't break me. You can't break me. You can't break me. You do whatever you want to me. You're not going to break me. You can beat me. You can push me down. Whatever you do to me, you're not going to break me. (laughs) So I had that attitude. I always had that attitude, you know, because I was a little guy and I'm going to survive. Knock me down. I'm going to get back up. I don't care. I'm just going to keep going. I don't quit. So I had that attitude and I had my thumbs up and I'm trying to fit in and survive. That's all I'm trying to do. <laughs> Learn the language. So I started recording my classes. I literally record my classes. I would go home. I had a tutor. 
So I would go to school twice. You know, I would go, you know, a 7 a.m. to 2, take my classes. Then I would go home with the with the, my tutor, go over class all over again. Right. And then I, my, I love comedy. You know, I'm really like, and I like laughing. All the TV had all these laugh tracks. And I thought, oh, my God, this is some funny shit because people are laughing so hard. I wanted to learn language. So I watched TV. I tutored. And I pretty much learned English in three months. Oh, good. To be able to function. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, I've always been, not because of my father, not because of anything. I've always been in competition with myself. I don't fight nobody else. I just want to know the best I can do. So getting great grades, I mean, it's so that, I don't know what that is, but I don't compare myself to others. I just want to be the best I can be. So So if I don't get straight A's, that's not good enough. You know, if I don't, I'm not the best at, you know, I don't do it. It's like, I gotta be. I work so hard at learning you know, so to this day, like I've never taken a biology course or advanced English because really? I didn't speak English. I couldn't, I didn't know the words. I couldn't take biology or, so I did really well in math. I had all AP classes, you know, and all that, except I never took AP English because I knew I couldn't handle it. <laughs> yeah, there's no need, and there's I, no and need and being involved in that. <laughs> no, but I did physics. I mean, physics, chemistry, no problem. Calculus. I was doing calculus as a sophomore. Right. So I, I started taking college courses, you know, in math only because of my math right. was really advanced because in Iran, it's, I'm telling you, it's to me, it's like when they put me on algebra 101, I was like, dude, I learned this in fourth grade. Wow. <laughs> so it was really, so it was, it was different. I mean, Arizona, which is, you know, God's going, it's so warm, you know, you're outside all the time. And I live right by a park. And there was these racquetball courses everywhere. So I spent my entire childhood in a racquetball court with me and a ball, which is three, you know, it's free. <laughs> so I would be there eight, 10, 12, 14 hours a day, right. just working on my craft with a working. ball right. and just working, working. And I never played again. So I was 13, I'm walking in a park and I see there's teams playing soccer. I was like, oh, it was boys club. I was like, there's teams here. So I go and I stand there and the guy's like, hey, you want to play? And they put me on the field and I obviously I dribble everyone, no one has skill. So I go, and they're like, okay, sign up, you're on the team. Great. So I start playing on the team and actually this is my first team. And it's rec. It is recreational. This is not travel. In soccer, you know, they have three levels. You have recreational. Right. And you have travel. And then you have premier, which is club. So this is recreational. And I'm playing rec boys club in Scottsdale, Arizona. We go to the playoff. And the other team coach protests that since I didn't sign up on the registration day, I couldn't play in the playoff. Yeah, it's not like so it's not, you were kicking. I ass. cried. Oh, my parents don't even know what's going on. I mean, I'm crying. You know, they're not letting me. So I trained by myself all summer. I'm gonna come back next season. And I'm gonna show them, and I go and sign up way early, <laughs> a week early, and I took my lunch money. Why? And my parents wouldn't pay for it because my father was a patriarch, and my father did not believe in. He was an engineer. So if you don't become an engineer, you're a piece of crap. 
okay. you know, so, and he didn't play sports. So if he did not support me becoming a pro, actually, when I turned pro at 17, he threw me out of the house. Oh, he did. Wait, when he why? Found, I mean, I'm, I mean, well, because I'm not going to be him because I'm going to go be, he felt if you're not a doctor or lawyer or an engineer, you're nothing. He just said, you don't want to work. You just chase and want to chase a ball around. That's he nice. did not believe physical. He was well, a patriarch. He didn't believe um, physical betterment of your body meant nothing. Mm. So I literally grew up with a abusive father emotionally. He never touched me because I was his firstborn. I mean, he beat the shit out of everybody else in the world, but he never touched me. And that was his way of showing he loved me right. with his mouth. With his mouth, I mean, for 40 years, he told me I was a piece of crap. You're, you know, you don't want to work. You know, I'm like, you know, like that. I don't know. This is, this is a lot of work. Right. So, but he never really supported it, you know, you know, I, and I understood him, you know, he never had a childhood, so he didn't know how to love. I got it. You know, I wasn't okay. I mean, so I just end up, you know, from the time I turned pro, you know, I just was living my life. I wasn't too close to my family which is, you know, I regret that now because my mom died really early and then they all died. But I, so I come in, I'm growing up in Arizona and I take enough signatures for my team to have a high school team by my junior year. So I played tennis the first year. I actually tried to play football my freshman year, but. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's, I mean, I mean that, when you weigh a hundred pounds, right? hundred pounds. Yeah, that's so, you out of your lane on that one. You out of your lane on that well, one. Well, I I went to one practice and I remember I was playing safety and I ran across the field, and the the line and nobody throws in high school. You know they all run. So so I'm playing right. safety and the, the running back gets free on the right side. I'm on I'm running with them on the left. I run across the field and I chase this guy across the field as hard as I could. And I tackle. I hit him as hard as I could. He just stepped out of bounds, and I bounced back like 10 yards, and I couldn't crush him. And I was like, that's it. I mean, this game is not for me. <laughs> so I didn't know. I just wanted to play. So I went to tennis. I stopped playing tennis, which is really where I learned mental toughness. Mm. So I played two years of tennis for my high school. And I, I was the type of player that I knew that my opponent and I didn't like to, like, if I knew I could beat him, I would always fall, you know, I go down love 30 and I come back and beat him. <laughs> so I would win my games seven, six, eight, six, the I sets. See. I let him win because I want to make it exciting. I didn't think, right. I didn't make, like. Make a game like, out beat. of it. Right. Because I was bored. I mean, <laughs> seriously. I mean, I, and my teacher, my coaches would just, I mean, they would hate it because we're, they always have to wait because I was always the last match. So like, dude, you could beat that guy in 15 minutes. I mean, you have to sit here two hours. Why? And I wouldn't say anything, but it's the way I liked it. I didn't like, I didn't, I didn't take anything out of beating someone six nothing. Right. But years later, I learned, you know, that's actually the, the, you know, you know what cruelty is? Yeah. Cruelty is letting a man taste victory and snatching it away from him. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's did cruelty. He, boy, did he really taste victory though? Did he really taste it? Well, I mean, well, they tried. <laughs> well, right. they didn't know, but I mean, the competition so, was too I, mean, so I learned. Well, I learned. I learned mental toughness. I really learned my mental toughness from tennis. I was a huge Bjorn Borg fan, so I watched Bjorn Borg. And Bjorn Borg used to sit in a back and rally, and that's what I would do. I would not make a mistake. I let the other guy make a mistake. Right. <laughs> so, 
so I played tennis, you know, because we didn't have anything else. So I got enough signatures. Meanwhile, I left the boys club. I was playing for Salvation Army team, <laughs> you know, in Phoenix. And I was the only white guy on the team. <laughs> so <laughs> seriously, my center back had a child. He, he was 17. He had a kid. <laughs> well, we, know, we know what he so was doing. The team was, well, I'm just telling you, this, this was like, it was all Spanish and African-American and, and I'm Iranian. You know, we're, there were this guy, Peter Dua, I never forget it. He was a great coach over there and he worked with the inner city kids. So I got on that team, but I, then I realized, you know, look, if I want to go to college, I need to be on, you know, a team that like our field, our practice field, the grass came to your knees. I mean, it's hard to play. The grass is up to your knees to play soccer. So um, a gentleman from Tempe Pumas, there was a guy who was actually an FBI agent. He was a coach. Um, he owned the team and he said, they asked me to come and play for this team, which I was the only non-white player because my team was now all white boys, blonde hair <laughs> because they were, were wealthy. They played in the inner city and they went to tournaments and I couldn't afford it. So they scholarshiped me. They say, Hey, you know, like, you know, the movie, um, running, I mean, kicking and was it kicking and screaming, get yeah. it to the Italians, <laughs> get the to ball the to the Italians. Right. I was the Iranian. Give it to the Iranians. Give it Give to it the, the Iranians. Iranian. Because you know. I could dribble. I had and, skill. But see, that's, that's, so. that's crazy you said that because, you know, I've, I've met a lot of Iranians and uh, Iraqis and uh, Middle East and all kinds of throwing players. And they always have that technical ability. Even now, I believe the last, was it World Cup? Yeah. The Iranian team was pretty good with the ball. Yeah, very, very good. You know, good same with the ball. Saudi technical. Arabian team. Yeah, very good with the ball. Right. But you see that individual player in the States, but you never see it on the international level for the national team, right? Yeah, I mean, don't start, don't start me on that with our American uh, we, we, We're going to get into well, that. We're gonna, I, I mean, I've been in this system for, for 30 some years, you know, and that's, you know, this, our system, our American system frustrates the heck out of me because I've been in it and I don't like any of it. I mean, for, listen, the worst thing that can happen to any American is to become a pro in the MLS. You know how many kids I've had go because they don't get the fair chance. You know, the American kids don't get to play. They bring all these washed up foreigners because it's so corrupt and the agents are getting paid. And well, I mean, they're not know, all I've they're had, not all washed up though. I mean, I think no, a lot. But but a lot of it when you come to America, you're selling out. You know, you're not. You know, in 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 soccer, you got to play at the highest league as high as you can go all the time. That's yeah, why. But, but the MLS is not the highest league, so there's a reason why you come here. No, exactly. Because they want to make the money and they're like, when, you, when someone leaves EPL and comes to America and plays in the MLS, you know, it's like, it's like you leaving NFL and going to Pop Warner. Yeah, but, it, but doesn't that depends on, doesn't that depends on how old you are when you leave and what you Sure, you that's for? what I mean. You're selling out. When you get older, you go for the money, not for the league. So in our sport. Right, that's how we should be as an athlete, right? You get older, uh, you can't compete well, at the highest level. And if you want to well, play for I, a little I, longer, you got to go to where you can actually still be a factor. Well, it depends, depends what kind of a pro. Okay, so this uh, kind of froze right now. But a lot of us, I'm like, look, I mean, I played 17 years and I should have quit 
four or five years before that, but I was experienced. I couldn't let it go. It's so hard. You know, you want to keep playing. And I knew, you know, I knew, and I was so experienced that I didn't even have to work hard to get away with it. But I knew in my own heart, I knew I wasn't, my skills was gone. My legs were gone. You know, it's, which is, I knew it, but, you know, you don't want to let go. And when I retired at 35, I played 17 years. From 35 to 38 was probably the worst three years of my life because yeah. I dealt I dealt with depression, drinking. I didn't even touch. I didn't even do anything. I did not even do a push-up for three years. <laughs> I wow. grew up. I mean, I got really heavy. Uh, you're depressed because my entire adult life from 17 to 35 mm the way I judged my day was by looking at the sports page. So I played 17 seasons. I 13 of the 17, I went to the playoff. I've been in nine finals. So I judged my day every day because they paid me if I finished at the top, not because you're just getting paid. That's not good enough. If you're a pro, if you're not going to finals, you're nothing. I mean, what do you get paid for? And so that's the kind of mentality that I had. And I wasn't really happy to just get paid. You know, I got paid and I wanted to be, do the most of it. Did you so, think you would compete you know, against some high level players? Well, absolutely. I mean, look, when I turned pro at 17, you know, in my team back then, you know, 1983, M MISO was, there was six guys making half a million dollars. <laughs> you know, the salary cap for 20 guys was $3 million. That's a lot of money it was, back then. It's a lot of money back then. It was people they don't, they don't, they don't, make, they don't make that now. No, not at all. I mean, I signed, I'm 17 years old, and I signed for $40,000. I mean, that, that's like 17 years old. I was making three twenty an hour. Minimum wage was 3 bucks. I was bagging groceries. Hmm. <laughs> I, went, I went from bagging groceries to become a pro soccer player, which was so crazy. You know, I, my dream of, you know, a scout seeing me exactly happened. I was playing in a park. I was playing in a park and I was ready for go to college. I would never had a dream of being a pro. And a guy just pulls over in a red Camaro and goes, Hey dude, you want to play in air conditioning? <laughs> and a year before, a year before our town got Phoenix Inferno, which was the pro indoor soccer team. I've never seen indoor soccer. Mm. I've only seen. So I, I, I gathered my lunch money and I went to a game. And um, when I'm at this game, you know, I fell absolutely in love with the indoor game. It's like hockey. When the goal was scored, they shot these flames because we were the Phoenix Inferno. Right. And you felt the flame in the stands. And I never forgot that, you know. And I scored my first goal. Those flames went up. <laughs> and I felt it <laughs> uh, a couple of years later. So here I am. I absolutely fell in love with this sport. I was watching him in playoff on TV. I was saving my lunch money. And this guy asked me to go play in air conditioning. It happens to be at the place where the pro team practice. Okay. So I'm playing men's league. I'm 16 years old playing in the men's league. I'm the only kid that's playing the men's league, but that's I could hold my good. own. You got to be well, really I held good my to get own. that done. Well, well, look, and I look back now. From the age I was 13, I played U15, U16. I never played my own age. Never growing up. Mm. I played from 15 and 16. I played U19. I was playing U19. The team in Tempe that I was telling you about, the guy with the FBI, that was a mm -hmm. U19 team. 
I was playing with 19 year olds. So I was always in an environment where I held my own. So when I went back to my own element, I could dominate, but okay. I didn't shine. I didn't shine. And I use that now in coaching, you know, for 30 some years that I coach, my best players played their own age and I play them up. So, and I play them sometimes two years up. So I, yeah, I kind play of and I know the kid, well, and I know a kid. So if I know a kid is going to be a center mid and he's a great center mid, well, I play him center mid with his own age, but I play him in the back with the older team. So I teach him how to play. Right. So I teach him how to learn the game. Then I play him two years up, which he has to sit on a bench, which he learns how to sit and come off the bench. So I learned, I've used my, because I didn't have a coach, you know, my first day, you know, so here I am in Phoenix, I'm playing in this men's league and the coach sees me on the field. And they had this thing in Phoenix where it was a great idea. They had a tryout. It was a hundred bucks a tryout and they were going to pick four of the pro players are going to make four teams. They were going to pick 12 players and play in the league for eight weeks, which you are coached by four pro players. So, I went to watch it because they were supposed to be 18 to try out. I'm only 16 years old. And because I played in the men's league and one of the guys go, Hey, let Tia play. So they threw me in. <laughs> so I'm playing. The pro guys picked me and they were like, Oh my God, this kid. Yeah. This is so, he's like a little kid. So they picked me. So he, and I make that one of the teams. So Miami, I, I begged my father, give me a hundred bucks, you know? Mm. So, to, you know, I begged and pleaded. My mom gave me some of it. You know, my dad was running, you know, we had a taxi. He was running taxis. You know, we, we went from being billionaires to like, you know, having to do whatever to get by, not even eating right. <laughs> sometimes. So I play in this eight week league that I'm learning and I'm playing once a week and the games were at nine o'clock and I, it was an hour away. So those nights I didn't get home till midnight. I had to get up, go to school the next day. It was really hard. And I'm borrowing gas money. I'm getting, I mean, it's an hour away. <laughs> My buddies have to drive me. It was hell. So and then at the end of eight weeks, there was a tryout. There was an all-star game. Well, in the all-star game in our town, there was a guy named Mark Curlin. who was a local boy because back then you needed three Americans on a roster. And our team had one guy, Mark Curlin. He went to school in Arizona. He ended up kicking actually field goals. He was a G, he was on the cover of GQ. I mean, he's in six four, blonde hair. He was a big boy. Right. You know, and his brother, his older brother, was playing in this men's league with me. And he was one of the all-stars. He got in a motorcycle accident on his way to the all-star game. So they go, Kia, go play in the all-star game. <laughs> Which I'm not supposed to play. And they felt like, Kia, you're here, go play. And I always had my shoes with me. So I went in the All-Star game. And I yeah, that's, how you know you're, that's how you know you're a ball player. When you go everywhere, you always got your shoes. You ready to go. Oh, brother, I was always ready. Because I never got picked because I'm little. If they picked me, <laughs> I was always ready. So ready. I scored four goals that game. You know, and everything goes my way. And the coach was Tony Samoas, which was a – you know, he played for Benfica in Portugal in the 1960s. He played in the World Cup. He's in Pele's all ten, top 11 pick. Mm. So this guy is a world-class player. And he's our coach of the Phoenix team. And he says, Kia, you know, I want you to 
leave high school and come play. I'm like, I'm a junior. I can't do that. You know, I can't drop out of high school. My father would kill me. So I said, no, thank you. I'm not going to do it. So I went back to my school. So, and I, and I was kind of depressed because I said no to him because I know I couldn't drop out of high school. Right. And so I chased my colleges, you know, where I want to go. I, you know, I chased everywhere, Harvard, University of Pacific, Azusa. Finally, I signed, you know, University of Bridgeport in Connecticut. I send them tapes. The guy never came down and he gave me a scholarship, which is right. to this day is like, why? You never even see me play, bro. And I'm like, little kid, you know, he gives me a scholarship and which was little and I'm going to go there. I paid for my dorm. And then the coach calls me. He goes, hey, man, I have an, a tryout. I've invited 40 people from around the world on a preseason. There's kids here from England. There's kids here from South America. Young, They're pros. I come for three days. It's at least a good tryout for you. Come and get a workout. I was like, okay, I'll go. So I went for three days. And there was like two a days. And they were doing all sorts of testing. And I, I mean, I, I, I was the one they picked. I did really well. And he goes, look, we think you can do it. We really think, you know, we can invest in you. You're not a pro yet, but we think you will be in three years. You're either going to be one of the best players in this league or you're not going to make it. Hmm. So we're going to give you a four-year Yeah. I mean, be the best and not make it. That's kind of wild. What they told me, he goes, by your third year, you're either going to make it or you're not made for this. Okay. So my contract, my contract was actually $24,000 with a $15,000 signing bonus mm-hmm. my first year. It went from 24000 to 40000 to eighty to 120 <laughs> because she gave me a four-year contract. So I was like, Okay. Um, and they go, we're going to have to live with a trainer because you need to learn to eat, sleep. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. So I went home to my dad and he threw me out. He kicked me out of the house. Right. And when I went to stay with my friend. Yeah. So yeah. He, so I'm, I'm at my friend's house. I'm talking to my general manager and they're like, well, you better get him to sign the contract because you're not 18 and we can't sign you. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I begged my consent. mother, I begged mm-hmm. my mother, I begged my, my, my father was an alcoholic, a functioning alcoholic. He drank mm. a third of a bottle of uh, Johnny Walker every night. He only drank once in a day and it would, at night he would drink, he drank a bottle in three days, a mm. third of it each night. And then he would drink and then lecture you <laughs> or write poetry. And so I bought him a Johnny Walker bottle and talk about that too that was that was that was an intense I'm, I'm not even old enough to buy you know it's hard enough to buy a beer try buying a bottle of Johnny Walker for your dad <laughs> I think, I, think I, I borrowed money from like five people I think <laughs> to be able to pull this off and right. somehow I got him a bottle and talked to my mom so she talked to him and like he was drinking and so he wrote me a check for 1500 bucks and he threw me out of the house and he signed my contract and my lease because I couldn't get a rent either. <laughs> um, so I, I became a pro. Good. So that was it. And then, um, yep. which was a whole, that was a whole different journey. Like 
how that guy treated me, which is he really knew what he was doing. You know, he like my first game ever. I mean, I, I never saw the field. I just dressed my second game. The goalie got a penalty. So, you know, in indoor soccer, you have penalties. So goalie got a penalty. So I, he tells me to go serve it. Mm. I go in the penalty box. As the penalty's over, he tells me to come over. I ran across the field. That counts as a game played. Then he goes, congratulations. You just played your first game. Wow, but I didn't really? touch the ball. But I didn't touch the ball. He goes, perfect. You didn't make any mistake. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good so one. So little, little by little, he kind of threw me in. And the game that I scored my first goal, I just happened to be dressed. I haven't played the game at all. I'm just watching the game. There's two minutes, three minutes left in the game. We're down 4-3. Mm. We're playing St. Louis. There's a corner kick. And he goes, go in. <laughs> so I was like, what? <laughs> go in. And I go in. And I'll never forget, the defender was Coy Coyman. He was on a U.S. national team. This guy's like, his legs... I could sleep in his pants as a hammock. His legs are so high. That's he's so big. His thighs, his thighs were the size of my torso. That's so he's doing. looking at me like, he's like looking at me like, what are you doing here? And I'm looking at his eyes and he looked to the ball, to, which is, he took his eye off of me. So I ran and the ball came and I first timed it and it went boom, off a corner. And we tied the game. We ended up winning overtime. And that was my first goal. <laughs> So I scored my you first. Always remember the 17. first one. Always remember the first one. Yeah, I mean, I was blessed. I ended up scoring 623 goals. Jeez, that's <laughs> um, a lot of goals. I, well, look, man, if you didn't score goals, why did they need another five-five guy around? <laughs> that is true. You had to reward that, the team. Well, I did my job. I I was a goal scorer. So if you don't score, I knew no one can argue with your size. You know, because even, I mean, when I came to, you know, when I was 17, so I'm in Phoenix, and that was MISL, which was the big league, you know. And then remember, outdoor soccer ended in the United States in 83. MLS, I mean, the NASL folded. Mm. So from 1983 to 96, there is no outdoor soccer in America. Oh, really? If you want to make a living, there wasn't. There was nothing till MLS. So when I'm growing up, which is, you know, 80, and I turned pro in 83, and I retired in 2000. So from 83 to 96, if you want to play in America, and, and you know, in 90, you know, what was it, in 87, I mean, because the salary cap, the way it turned out, I was like the highest paid player in America. Because you could only make so much money, and I was making the maximum. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so, well, because the salary cap and, you know, it was, you know, in the first, you know, MISO was huge. You know, MISO, I drew NBA, NHL. You know, we had 18,000, 19,000 fans. Mm -hmm. You know, I came to Cleveland. You know, I came to Cleveland. I was 17 years old. There was 22,000 fans, you know, at the Coliseum, you know, at the Force Coliseum. And so MISO was huge. So right. then I get, well, and then my team folds. After my first year, my team folded. We were owned by the Phoenix Suns. Okay. We were owned by the Phoenix Suns. And the Phoenix Inferno was owned by, I think, Mafia, Russian Mafia. I mean, they were going to Miami and bringing home their payroll. <laughs> so Phoenix Suns bought them and the cable company, which was in town, they owned it. And in soccer, you know, 
they spent a lot of money. They brought in Tony Samos, which was Portuguese. And I'll never forget this. I mean, I was involved with some big-time players. I mean, Willie Watson played for Man United. John Gorman, which was coach for Steve Hoddle in England. I mean, these are big, big, big names. And these guys took me under their wings. And they taught me the ropes. You know, my very first practice, I had this guy named Steve Davis. He was he's Jamaican international. It's my one of my first practice. He goes, hey, you want to hit crossbar from the red line mm-hmm. for a drink? I was like, okay. So, I mean, I hit it, you know, one out of five. He hit it like three times. And he goes, all right, we're going to drink downtown. So after practice, he takes me to downtown. And I'm 17 years old. And this guy's like a 30-some-year-old veteran. He played in the World Cup. He's making like half a million dollars. He's, like, he's the biggest name on our team. So he takes me to lunch. And he orders Louis the Fourteenth brandy, and I was like, "All right, I have one." Right. <laughs> so we get lunch, and the bill comes. It's like two hundred and forty dollars. I was like, "What?" He goes, "Hey, it's lesson number one: never, never bet a veteran. <laughs> You'll lose every time." So I mean, so these guys like really took me to their wings, and I learned, I mean, so much from them. But then my team folds. So here I am. I can't go back to college. And we're come to American soccer, you know, you got, you know, what are you going to do? So I went to St. Louis, which is the team I scored my first goal against. I was there three months and the coach like, I don't know, man, you're so little, you're so young. You know, I did great in the preseason. And then out of nowhere, this new league started, which was called the AISA, which would happen to be six teams. And they only had seven Europeans in their their model was seven Europeans, rest American. And because I, w- I had a green card, because I went to high school here, so I counted as an American. And my coach was Klaus DeBoer, which was a Dutch, very well-known Dutch coach. And the Portuguese guy called him and said, hey, you want this kid. So he called me in St. Louis, and I knew I couldn't go another year of just training. Because that year, I only, I only really saw the field, barely. I dressed in 15 games, but I really only had like regular shift in one or two. The rest of them, I just got like one shift here, you know, just step on the field. Right. Oh, he's cute, cute. Just let him try this. <laughs> you know, I really wasn't taken seriously and I knew I couldn't do it. I couldn't just practice. It drove me crazy. You know, just practice. I knew I needed to play games. I knew I needed to. So this new league starts. And as an 18-year-old, they told me, Kia, come in, you're going to play. So I went to Canton, which ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me. This place was like only held 3,500, and we sold it out every night. We, I won three championships with them right away. We, I played, you know, in three years, I played 120 games. I, like the first year there, I scored 52 goals as an 18-year-old. So, and I went. Yeah, I mean, we still, I mean, I was in a really good team, and my job was to finish, so I did. I scored goals. So, and that ended up being the best thing that happened to me because I wanted to come back to MISL. So I was 21, and the same coach that didn't take me in St. Louis, mm-hmm. now he was a coach at Kansas City. And this is like, I'm 22 years old. So back then, it was unheard of. He paid $15,000 for me to be bought from Canton and go to Kansas City. So I went back Wait, to them. How much was this? It was fifteen grand to buy wow. me. 
Really? So they, yeah, they paid 15 grand. Unheard of because Canton was owned by the guys who owned the league. Now, listen to this. I go back to that league seven years later. They tell me they still have my rights. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I've been gone seven years. They go, it's okay. We have your rights. We have <laughs> your like, rights. Okay. You still are. You belong to us. Yeah. So, I mean, I learned. So 17 years. I mean, the first five years I had agents. After that, I just represented myself. I learned that soccer, you know, it's not enough. I had to, I've always, 13 of the 17 years, I worked in the front office. I was always did the, all the community relations, all the marketing. So I hustled. I mean, I worked the nights. So pretty much all my life, I made as much money in nights and in the summers. And I did for the whole year playing. So in the summers, I, so the day I turned pro, at 17, I did hear a voice that said, go teach it. So I, be, I went to my team and I became a coach. So I became a coach at 17. So I literally been coaching youth. I got my first state job, high school job as an 18 year old. I was an assistant coach at 18 year old at a high school, which I ended up, Glen Oak High School, which I ended up coaching it for seven years. My son ended up going to school there, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I coached. Because I thought, you know, as a pro player, I thought it was my duty to coach high school for my community. Right. So I was in that community of Canton. You know, this is football town, brother. You know, Massillon, Canton. You know, my first year, I had zero kids. One kid play year-round. After seven years, I had 80 kids playing year-round. I had, we had our own homecoming. I had five teams. 80 kids played year-round. We had our own cheerleaders. We had our own homecoming. So, I mean, I turned it around from soccer being this, well, it was a sport for rejects in the beginning, you know, and everyone, I was like, no. So, so we ended up being like best buddies with the football team because I also, the football coach was my, uh, Fred Thomas, he was my neighbor. Mm. So, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a youth, you know, I, I'll, I'll do anything for youth, you know, <laughs> and for the young. So I was helping the kickers. So the football players would come to my practices and we would go to theirs and we kind of created it. Look, in what I do, I've learned from soccer and coaching. It's about building a culture. That's mm -hmm. what I do. I build a culture. So in a culture and coaching, modeling is the best form of learning. So whatever I'm teaching to the kids, I walk the walk. I eat the way I do. I exercise the way I do at 55 because I'm a model. For these kids so i <laughs> i gotta do it because of them not because of me so that's why i train the way i do and i put myself through hell <laughs> because you're a model you stand up for kids and you can't just tell them what to do you got to show them and you and if you're not doing it yourself then you're just talking mm -hmm. so, and i'm not a believer in that i mean i mean i believe in whatever you tell your kids as a coach you better be able to do yourself and you've done it yourself Right. So I've, I've had that standard for years. So, and I do that coaches. So coaching and soccer has just been become my life. And through it, I mean, so many unbelievable things have happened to me. <laughs> so right. I got to play for my national team, you know, in 96, the U S asked me to play for them. And I became, I played for us. We went to a tour to Brazil and played five games, scored two goals. So what age group? Uh, I got to, 
for the U.S. national team. I mean, '96, I went to Europe for I mean to Brazil for one trip nice. for the football team, and and we went on. Um, yeah, was, we played Spain. It was my first ever to be asked. I just became a citizen. Hmm. They were actually a year before I wasn't a citizen. They were trying to hurry up and get my citizenship, and they couldn't. So because I'm a political asylum. I got my uh, citizenship through political asylum. I mean, it's kind of complicated. So I don't have a home. There's no way I could ever go back to Iran. There, I mean, I'm a Christian. There's no way under any circumstances I would. I can go back to Iran if I say I'm not a Christian, but I would never do that. I mean, Wait, so they're still prosecuting Christians publicly? Is that? Like, well, you can't brother, be, look, you can't I'm be an American. Christian. Right. Well, I'm an American citizen, which was I'm an Iranian who moved to the United States, who is now an American citizen and a Christian. I was pretty much willing to bet I would be a candidate for Internet beheading. Mm. No problem. If I go there, I probably wouldn't last. I wouldn't last long. Yeah, that makes sense. I can, I can say it's a tough place. I would never, I could, well, so which is. It's a tough place for a Christian, especially, like you said, if you're leaving, going back up there. You got to do well, all the consequences for any person. Like, you know where your home is. Where are you born? Where are you right. born? Right. Where are you born? Where are you oh, born? In uh, Lagos, in Nigeria. Okay. So, I mean, you know where your home is. You can go mm-hmm. visit. I, I, I don't have roots like that. I'm more like a hovercraft. <laughs> I've learned I don't have roots because I can never go back to my home. So my home is United States. America is my home. I mean, right. I am a, I'm a conservative patriot. I've never missed a vote the day that became, I became a citizen because mm. I honor it. And I don't believe if you don't vote, you can't participate in the American system. And I, right. I love the American system. I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but, you know, and, and in all these years I voted, I've only voted for the winner mm. once. <laughs> That's all right. Voted. I mean, you can vote. I voted. You all exercising your right. You keep voting. Exercising well, be, your yeah, right. Because if you don't vote, if you don't vote, you can't complain. You, you can't cannot participate. Right. You, you have to vote. It, and, and I don't vote. For years, I voted for Nader, which is a constitutionalist. Because he just said, hey, I'm not going to win. I just, it's my right to run. So I want to run. Right. You know, I remember, I do remember in Ohio, they, told, they wouldn't let his name on the ballot. They wouldn't let his name be on the write in ballot unless mm. it was written. I'm like, how is that possible? <laughs> so you got you to gotta be on a list to be written in. Is, how does that make sense? Which is right. the only thing about American system that I don't understand. You know, when I came to America, I understood everything in America, you have so many choices. The beauty of America is that you have unlimited choices. But with good choices comes bad choices. Right. In my country, in Iran, if you did drugs, well, it's easy. They just kill you. Right away, behead, done. Well, but here, you know, or any of you do anything bad, you know, there's no choice. They're, they shove it down your throat where you can say, where you can read. People don't understand what freedom we have here and they take it for granted. Absolutely. They, they don't understand, bro, you live in the greatest place that God has ever, he's blessed us beyond belief. You know, America is, we, we're the only country that's founded by, we have God in our constitution. Nobody else does, you know, and they're trying to take it out, which really upsets me the last few years, you know, but I don't want to get too much in politics, but I mean, I'm a soccer guy, but right. I love it. And, and we're going to dig into and that. And we're going to dig into that. Cause yeah. I definitely have some questions for you about 
um, sure. you know, the, the states of American soccer. I know earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, MLS not being a great place for kids. And there was an article that came out a few weeks ago uh, that most of the kids coming out of college are not really getting drafted in the MLS and want to get drafted. Only a couple actually get on the roster. Most of them are getting sent down to uh, the second are, division. Second MLS. division. Yeah, I mean, and even that, I mean, I don't look, even want them. Look, I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you a story, and he's by far the best American player that I've ever had. And his name is Kenny Walker. You know, he he got drafted, but he went to Louisville. You know, I sent him to Louisville because Ken Lola, the head coach of Louisville, is my best friend. We played together. Um, we played together in Canton. He was head coach of Akron, and he got the job in Louisville. Hmm. And I'm a big, firm believer. I'm going like, to go up there and I, go, I'm gonna have to go up there and go watch well, practices. Well, he gave he actually, last year, brother, he gave up his Louisville job to preach full-time. Oh, nice. Seven-figure job. I mean, I'm telling you, brother, he had the best job in America, but he's a man of God. And he called me, and he's like, look, I'm giving it up. I'm going to preach full-time. I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> Wow, God bless you, bro. I mean, I, I wish I could do that. <laughs> you know, I mean, but so he's definitely a man of God. And I've always known that about Ken. Ken, actually, I'm responsible for Ken Lola for who I am. Because hmm. when, when I came to Canton, I was 18. He was 22. He was captain of Duke. Okay. He played in the longest college soccer game of all time. Eight overtimes against Indiana. Eight wow. overtimes. He scored in the eighth overtime. They win it. He was the, I mean, he was, he was my midfielder and I looked up to, and he was a little guy like me, but I looked up to him like you wouldn't believe. And he taught me how to public speak. Him and I went to two schools every single day to do all the appearances because we give every kid a free ticket. The parents went for, you know, that's how we build the team. And that's how we had, we sold out because we were part of the community. And I went with him every day and I learned from him how to public speak, how to train, how to eat right. You know, <laughs> a lot of it I learned from Ken Lola, you know, and then he left, you know, he left, you know, we, you know, I went to Kansas city and I got bought out and I went to the big leagues and, you know, he, he stayed for a few years playing and he took a coaching job and he became a head coach of Akron. I picked him up at the airport. He was getting a job, and I wanted to be his assistant. I was really wanting to quit playing. When I was playing, I was really doing well. But I, do, I don't like the pro-life. I never like the pro-life. You know, I, I like the sport I do. I love it. But pro-life is not a good life, you know, to raise children. you got to move house every – my first 11 years as a pro, I lived in 14 different homes. Mm. <laughs> You know, it's not a place you can raise children. And I've always wanted to be a dad. And, you know, if you're going to be a pro, you know, and, and I, I got married young and I had two children and my, my, my wife, the mother of my children, always wanted a nine to five guy. <laughs> so she stopped going to my games. She didn't want to watch me. She just wanted to be a mom. And why can't you have a nine to five job? I'm like, well, this is what I do. I'm sorry. So. I wanted to get out of playing and just be an assistant. I said, okay, I'll be an assistant to Akron. So he used me up, but I don't have a college degree because I turned pro out of high school. And he said, look, I, I have a really tough time, A, hiring you as my assistant because we're equals. 
you know, like my, we were together. We were my, I was a goal scorer. He was the midfielder, you know, and, and second, you don't have a college degree and I represent a college program. I don't know if I can have you as an assistant. At first I was heartbroken, mm-hmm. but then it really made sense. So I went on and, you know, I went on and did business and I went, I mean, I did really well. I built like, whatever, you know, I built all these soccer stores and buildings and what I was playing and, so I, I went the other way, get into business, but I really wanted to be his assistant and take a humble life and just be a college coach. But he talked me out of it. And I kind of, I, I wish, I'm, I'm glad it happened because I don't like the, the restrictions the college coaches go by. There's no way in the world you could get me to be a college coach. It's because not enough time. You have so, well, it's, it's not either. You, you're not a coach. You have to follow all the rules. You don't yeah. get to t- develop players. Look, I love what I do as a youth coach because I don't – nobody can tell me – Well, it's about winning. I don't, you know what I'm no, saying? it's not so, about winning. It's about no, in college. No, not in college. The college yeah, is about, college winning. Is about winning. It's always about winning. Oh, yeah. When you're doing clubs, little kids and all of that, high school, well, you can work on developing. And if it's about winning, you, you have a you have 16-game season in three months. You're not allowed to talk to the kids in the spring. Hardly train them. So how are you supposed to win – when your hands are tied behind your back, because soccer is not a sport where you just pick up a season and go. Well, you got to train all year. Right, but look know? at it this way, though: the elite players, they train all year round, and then they right, go to the, they, they don't go play to the, college. And then, yeah, right, they won't but, play college. They go pro. You right, know, so, but what we're yeah. talking about, there's different levels of the elite, right? There's the ones that go pro, and there's sure. the ones that go to college. The ones that are going to college, they go to the top schools. You know, so the coaches don't really have to do too much coaching, just more so of how I want to play, the structure, not individual, right. you know, training. So that's why college is different. Like, that's why these kids are going to college and the MLS don't want them because they're not developed after four years. Well, they don't get it. They don't get those. Look, look, when you bring an American kid, right? I mean, I had this kid, Kenny Walker, which was the best American kid. Robbie Keane, which played for, I mean, he got drafted by LA Galaxy. Kenny got drafted by LA Galaxy from New York. From and I remember when he got drafted, he was the last pick on the second draft, and he was by far the best American player to come out of college. And I talked to all my buddies about, you know, they were all like head coaches, Kansas City. A lot of my buddies are MLS coaches. And they all told me, hey man, Kenny's only gonna make 45 grand. Because that's what we pay Americans. Mm-hmm. That's just what it I was like, are you serious? This kid is the best kid. He can do whatever you want with the ball. His mind, his grit, you know, so he ends up getting drafted by LA Galaxy and obviously, you know, he's there with Beckham and, you know, I remember he was he was second year there and he took a ball from Beckham and Beckham whacked him mm-hmm. from behind. Gave him nerve damage in the back of his calf because his young, young kid took a ball from him and then in the locker room he came to him and said, I'm sorry. And he goes, he didn't mean it <laughs> and nothing's going to happen. I mean, so, so, and then he would never get a fair crack. So he was there tears, hardly saw the field because dude, you're only making 45 grand. There's guys who are making half a million, they gotta play. 2 million. They got to play and they're not, they're washed up and it does. See, this is why it's messed up. You got to be, you got to work no matter how hard you work, no matter how good you do, it doesn't matter because that guy, came from Europe and he's making big money, we got to play him. So mm-hmm. it's completely unfair to the American. Yeah, a few of them here and there, but as a most, most of them, look, I prepare kids. I never tell kids this, that I've never 
And I've had 54 kids turn pro. And nobody knows that. <laughs> I told you that day. Because I, I don't advertise it. I don't say anything about it. For one, I'm not really proud of it because most of them are not happy. <laughs> you know, but I don't, I, you know, they say every kid that every kid that's with me, we journal. All my kids journal and I make them journal and I write to them and they all in their journal tell me their dreams. I have never, ever in 37 years that I've been a coach broken a kid's dream, mm. even though I didn't agree with it. I don't break his dream. Even if, if his dream is to become a pro, I do everything within my power to make sure he's accountable to his dream. Even though I don't think he's going to be, it doesn't matter. It's his dream. I don't break it. I don't tell a kid, no, man, you're not going to do it. No. I say, okay, you sure you want to be a pro? Okay. Well, if you want to be a pro, don't you think you should be my best player on my team? So just work on that. Right. Work on being the best player on my team. Okay. So I, I hold him accountable and I try to train him, help him to get ready, even though I know, like, I mean, I had, a, I had a player, lost his father, big boy. Oh, my God. He was 6'6", six, six, like a house, wanted to be a pro. And his feet were not very good. <laughs> even though he was a house, his feet were not very good. He looked like a tank. But a guy like me would just destroy him in two seconds in front of him. Right. So he, for years, brother, he trained and he trained. Couldn't even afford to pay me. I trained him anyways. <laughs> he would come to my house five o'clock in the morning, get a free training. I mean, he would just train, 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 train. And I was like, okay, as long as you want to train, I'll train you. So one day I kind of finally said he went to all these tryouts, couldn't do it. I said, hey, man, why don't you guys are forward? Not a center back. I'm telling you, people who think, look at you, they go, wow, six, six forward? So he went to Minnesota, and he said he's a forward. So they signed him. They didn't pay him any money because he wasn't good enough. But he signed a pro contract. They just paid for his apartment. And to his mind, he made it. And he did it a year. Then he became uh, a paramedic, which he should have been. <laughs> Always like, but it was his dream. Who am I to say? Dude, you know, to him, he made pro. He got a pro contract, even though he never got paid. But to him, he was a pro, and God bless him, you know. He worked hard. So I, I do believe that, and I say that to every kid. If it, You know, if it's not just talent. You have to have hard work. I teach humility, hunger, smarts. Humility, hunger, smart. If you're not hungry, you ain't going to make it. Right. No, no way. No way in life. Right. You got to be hungry. Doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, you, you got to be, and you got to be humble. If you're not humble, humble. Yeah. I mean, humility is tough to teach, especially to people who are type A personalities and the best of what they do, you know, but humility, hunger, smart, because I, a lot of guys make it to pros, but it's not just making it. You got to stay there. Gotta stay there. Okay, yeah, forget making it. What's it about making it? You know, are you an all-star? Right. Right. Can you can you get some bonus? Can you uh can you accomplish some goals in the league so they can pay you extra money? Can be. Well, it's not about money, brother. Look, I, I you know, the most I ever made well, I mean, soccer. Well, yeah, but I'm saying the most guys when you get to the pros, you do want to get after payment. You do want to get some good money. Uh well, yeah, that's the, how you the get, love is yeah. Right. Yeah, do you get paid based on the goals you score, the points you get, and championships you win? 
Absolutely. And the fans you bring in. If you bring in fans, you know, those are the things they pay you for. But ultimately, it's about your stats. Mm. You know, and I don't teach that with kids. Like, absolutely, I'm the other way. Like, I don't believe in people who are egocentric or scoreboard-centric and they just value their self-worth based on what tournaments they win or how many championships. In youth, that means nothing. Mm. In youth, it's all about skill development. I didn't win anything as a youth. Nothing. What did I win? I mean, maybe one tournament. And I became the youngest player in America at 17. I got cut. You know, we have state teams, which is in soccer, you have state teams. You know, when you have club, and then they have state teams. And from the state team, they make the regional team. And from the regional team, they make national team. Right. Well, I played for my state team in Arizona, 16 years old. I was trying to play as a 17-year-old, and they cut me. They said, you're too little to play soccer. Three months before I turned pro. And, and that guy held the same job for 20 years. He was, and I sent him Christmas cards for 12 years mm. for thanking him for cutting me and telling me that I'm not to make the state team. I didn't make the state team, but I turned pro. I mean, I have guys here who play for Division One soccer. Division One were Bowling Green. There's a couple of them. Marquette. They never saw the field. They graduate, they go sign in Spain, Portugal, South Africa. <laughs> You're like, what? Because, yeah, I mean, hey, in college soccer, I mean, it's soccer is a matter of opinion. It is. It's a matter of opinion and style. One guy thinks you're good, another guy thinks you're crap. That's just yeah. how it is, okay? Yeah, unfortunately, if you want to play college soccer in America, you have, uh, it's, you know, it's really two things that you need. Besides knowing people, right? You have to have the pace and you have to have the strength. That's it. Well, well, college soccer has really changed. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, college soccer didn't look anything like pro soccer. College soccer now looks a lot like pro soccer. Couple, some teams do. Of, oh, yeah. Like, I mean, Louisville, Louisville, Indiana, yeah, uh, Wake Forest, Virginia. Good. I mean, they're pro, they're pro factories. I mean. They no, not necessarily, up. because like I said, the stat shows that very few players are getting drafted. When they do, very few are actually getting playing time. True, but they're so, making it. They're getting drafted, though. Yeah, know? but I mean, and you get drafted, the and, then with, and then a year, right, you don't want to be in the USL. You could have just go there without a high school. But that's, that's, but that's reality of American life. If you're right. going to be so an that's American what I'm saying, soccer though. player, so, you're playing in the USL. I right. mean, that's just how it is. Then I, get, so I mean, then, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with it. I don't so, agree with it, but I mean, look yeah. at USL right now. What you know what USL is doing right now? I mean, USL right now they're making all the players take a pay cut because of the COVID, and if they don't agree, they're just going to fold the league and start over another one. Yeah, because I mean, it's I'm telling you, American players and American soccer, we never had bargaining rights. You know, well, in when, unions, when, nothing. When is that we, it? I mean, we say we do, we say we do, but I mean, there's like, I mean, MLS is a single entity. They're all the owners are partners. How, how can you have free agency when they're right. all partners? Right. There is no free agency. Right. They're all partners. If one guy blackballs you, trust me, no one's so, going to touch no you. No one's going to touch you. So, right. I mean, they're all partners. There's no other league in the world where all the owners are partners. MLS, MLS is a real estate play. All those guys are about real estate. It's a real estate REIT. Well, did, you hear what, uh, did you hear what Wayne Rooney said when he was here? 
about the league. He said the league don't treat American players right. He said they don't treat them Nobody right. Nobody does. He said they need to no. pay him as much as the European guys, if not even more. He said he's the only way the league's going to grow is when, they, when, when Americans start investing in his own players and start but growing unfortunately, I, get, I agree. I agree. Unfortunately, people don't want to see an American player. They want to see some well-washed-up guy who comes here. I mean, like Pirlo. I mean, Pirlo comes from Italy. I mean, he, he strolled around the field. He didn't even, like, jog. Yeah, but, He's okay. He's so, more money than anyone. Yeah, but Pelo was still the best player on the field every single day. Um, being slow he doesn't... He was, but before he came here. Before he came here. When no, he even, when he was, even, when he, even when he was here. I, I went to the game. I don't That's know, brother. I mean, some of the games he was good, but Look, more, if you, he was not what he was at AC Milan or Juventus. Of course not. He was not no. the same one. Well, how could you be when the game you're playing has changed? You have to remember, the game in exactly. Italy was controlled. Now, when you come here and play here and everybody's kicking the ball all over the place, you can't be well, the same because you barely touch the that's ball. That's what I said here. But that's what I'm saying. People that come here realize I sold out and then they hate themselves. Like, oh my God, I came here just for money. I can't, oh my God. I mean, so Wayne I mean, Rooney did that. I mean, Beckham did that. Beckham came here, tried to make, you know, he had all the money in the world. But ultimately, his heart, you know, he wanted to go back to London. He wanted to go back in Europe. He went to Paris Saint-Germain and he was doing whatever he could, you know, right. to get at the highest level. Because if you're a player, you know the level. You know the MLS is not the same as, you know, when you watch. I mean, I love, look, I, I'm, I'm as American as it gets. And I want to, and I want American to do good. I want soccer to do well. But when you watch an MLS game versus an EPL game, it's just not even the same. It's not. The amount of mistakes, the speed of the game, you know, no one wants to take chances to just woof it. I never understood that. Just kick it. Just kick it off the field. And they're like, what? I don't like to watch that. You know, if I want to watch crap soccer, I'll just keep watching youth. Right. <laughs> I'm in it all day. Right. You know, I want to watch pros. I want to see some skill, not just some big guy just kicking it. Right. What is that? But, I mean, that's the reality of it. But it's come a long way. A lot of people watch it. I mean, my best friend is, like, head coach of Seattle. Brian Schmetzer, I mean, like Seattle is a great team and they play, they try to play. What, the Atlanta tries to play. Yeah. I mean, I played, I mean, Schmetzer's done really well there. I mean, I played in Tacoma with all three of them. There's three of them Andy Schmetzer, Walter Schmetzer, and Brian Schmetzer. Mm. I was on the same team with all three. So, I mean, it was, so, listen to those broadcasts Schmetzer, to Schmetzer, to Schmetzer. <laughs> we were on the same line. We were on the same line. I'm serious. Brian was a defender, Holt was a midfielder, and Andy was kind of a forward. And I played with all three on the same line. Mm. Three Schmetzers on the same line. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, yeah, so... They had, they, had a, they had a guy that used to be a coach the uh, Seattle uh, D2 team, the second team. He's uh, an uh, uncle of a friend of mine, and I reached out to him. I was like, man, we can. I can use somebody. I can use somebody in the pros as my mentor, as my guide. In, in, in 1987, I got traded from Kansas City to Tacoma, Tacoma, Washington, which is right next to Seattle. In in Christmas Eve, <laughs> I come home. I had my parents finally moved to Kansas City. Mm. I told them that, Dad, leave Phoenix. I'm doing really good. Let's forget the past. I'm 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 one of the most popular players here. I got a big contract. I'm building a house. I built my house, my first home. Move here. He moved there. I went to his house for dinner. I came home. It was Christmas Eve, and I'm on the news. Hey, tomorrow, big news conference. Kia. 
I told my wife, honey, come in, we're on TV. So she comes in and they go, oh, the, the Kansas City Commons have decided that Key and Barry Wallace are traded to Tacoma. I was like, what? <laughs> that's how I found out. I found, that's how I found out. I found out that I was traded, and which ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me because I left Kansas City. I went to Tacoma, and that's when I became my first all-star. Mm. Then I went to Tacoma because that team was – I played with Precky. Remember Precky? Yeah. I mean, if you watch USA Brazil, he scored the most. We beat Brazil. He scored the most unbelievable goal against Brazil. Precky, Precky was he was one of the best players. Well, Mm -hmm. Precky was one of the best players I've ever played with, and I was a goal scorer, so he always drew three people, (laughs) and he just passed. And he was so good at passing. Mm -hmm. When I went over there, ended up being like the best thing that ever happened to me, because I made the All Star team. You know, I played in a in a different team and it was, it was, I had to get out of Kansas city. It was not good. Um, but I mean, Seattle, I have a very, 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 I love Seattle. Seattle is one of my favorite places. Oh, that's good. City, we, gotta, Seattle, we gotta go to a game. Then. All we gotta, once all these get settled down, we got to go to a Saunders game. Sure. Anytime you want. You know, <laughs> I'll treat you. Game. I'll treat you. Once all these get settled down. I love going to the MLS game. At least, NYCFC game. I try to go to one or two a year when when the games are here. So, um, so yeah, I, I always love going and just you know just. You just, ever go? Well, you know, you know Brad Stuver, uh-uh. the goalkeeper from New York FC. Nope. Well, he's one of my players, Brad Stuver. He's a goalkeeper for New York FC. Mm. He's one of my one of my players. I I have um, Justin Morrow, which is in Toronto. He's one of my players, Kenny Walker. Oh. There's that was a lot of them. Yeah, Kenny's in India. Uh, I just saw that Kenny's in India. He's in Indy Eleven. He was in Cincinnati, and now he's in Indy Eleven. But I'm telling you, read about Robbie Keane and his experience. I mean, he was one of the best American players, and he couldn't get a sniff. <laughs> hmm. Another one I have, you know, right now, Nate Schultz. Nate Schultz came out of Akron got drafted by L.A., never saw the first team. And he's a great player. I mean, he's a great, great – I mean, I've, I've coached a lot of Americans, brother. Ways, yeah, no, he's with a, Nate, I know. Nate is deciding – he left L.A. He did not want to go back to USL, and he's going to probably sign in Australia. And he's going to go either – he's going to play in Europe. Hmm. I've been training him. I've been training him. He's in town training, and he's ready to go to Europe. and. You know, they like it's not a bad move for a lot of Americans. When you go to Europe, they like you because you're American. You know, it's a different, and I, you know, but some of, I have another player, never played here. He's actually my assistant now. Went to Bowling Green. Didn't even, he was a captain of Bowling Green. Didn't even see the field. Mm. They didn't let him play because he was little. He was very technical. After graduation, trains, signs in third division Spain. Mm. <laughs> wow. So he's, play, he's playing in Spain, but in the lower leagues, they don't really like Americans. So if someone comes through and just does them and from behind really? tears his AC, t- tears his ACL. I mean, if you see the tackle, that guy, it was 89th minute. He definitely went to do him and he got him. So he does his ACL, comes back here, trains for, gets his surgery. I get him back to shape in six months, leaves with his team, goes to Portugal, and then in Brazil for preseason, he's walking down a step and he shatters his kneecap. Mm. Just breaks because no contact, nothing. So he's like 24 years old. 
Now his kneecap's gone. Second surgery, so he's done. I mean, he's on playing. So I, you know, I've I've hired him, and he's not my assistant. Actually, we were partners. So, so he's one kid. I coached him since he was twelve years old. Oh, that's good. <laughs> now he's yeah. back. I mean, well, look, I have a lot of those guys who I've trained. They become coaches. They go on, become pros, whatever, and become coaches. The circle of life. You know, that to me, that's a successful program. It is. It when is. You I love it. Bring I, a kid. I, I love it. You you bring a kid, you raise him from, you know, this is my 23rd year. It would have been, but, you know, the 23rd year where my U18s started with me as six year olds. So I, you know, you're with them from six to 18. That's 12 years you're with a kid. I've done that 23 times. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's a lot of kids you see as six year olds. And, and I've, I've known them. Most of them I've known. I, when they're five or six, I've said, this kid's going to be it. Right. You, see, it. you it. see that E-factor. You said this kid's got it. Yeah. And I also can see when they, when they don't, they're not going to make it. And ask mm -hmm. me how I know they're not going to make it. You know how I know they're not going to make it? How? When their parents are really involved. Really? If a parent, if a parent is really involved and they're like, oh, they're doing everything, they're making the kid's schedule. I'd say that there's no way that kid's gonna make it because he's not doing it. His parents are doing it. His parents are not gonna win the tryout. His parents are not gonna make him hungry. Interesting. Anybody that, and and I learned that from years ago. I took a course with Steve Highway. He was the youth coach in Liverpool. He was in charge of Gerard, Michael Owen. And he brought it to me. This is like 15 years ago. I took a class with him one day seminar. And he, I asked him the same question. I go, how do you know someone's going to make it? He goes, I don't know who's going to make it. I can tell you who's not going to make it. I was like, how do you know? He goes, well, if their parents are involved, there's no way they're going to make it. And it really resonated with me because, and I do that now. Whenever I meet with parents, it's really easy. I sit with them right away when they come to me. I said, do you want to stay in charge of your child's development? And if they tell me yes, I go, great. You don't need me. Go. But Kia, what if that parent doesn't know better though? So I mean I get why? it. I get it. They don't know better. And I never and I also believe you never punish a child because of their parents. You don't. I never in in forty years that I've coached, I don't punish a child because of his parent. But parents ultimately, you know. You have to, you, you know, you, I talk to them. I let them know that, look, I don't believe in forced development because forced development doesn't work. If you take the pressure off, that force is gone. That kid's not going to work. Now, if it's coming from within him, you providing, like, the best parents are the ones that just drive the kid there. They never get involved in, hey, I think you should do this. Hey, you did that. They tell you, how do you feel? Why do you feel that way? Okay, what well, have you talked to your coach? I think you need to do that. Those are the parents who support their kids, but they don't live through their kids. If you live in through your kid, there's no way your kid's going to make it, mm. in my opinion. I haven't seen too many. And if they do, you know, I've, I've had a parent who really literally paid. I know they paid for their kid to make it all the way to the pros. To send yeah. them to England to buy a sponsorship for the team so they sign them. But ultimately, the kids got to play. The kids got to play. They can't do it. 
Right. And if you can't do it and the parents not good enough, okay, you're not going to make it. I mean, that to me is, you know, not really making it. Making it is, to me, making it is, you know, you need connections. There's no way in life you're going to go somewhere. And this is what I do for my players. I've been around for a long time, but I don't never recommend someone to somewhere where I don't think they belong. Mm. And I always, I've never lied to a coach, a college coach in my life. I don't. I, because it's my reputation. I let them know if a kid has baggage. I let them know if I think, you know, the kid has, you know, what I'm honest with takes, them. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, you, have or you have to be honest with the college coaches because if you lie to a college coach, he's never going to recruit from you again. No way. It's if you done. give him a kid, if you, and I always tell him my honest opinion. And, I, and my players know that. And I'd say to my players, look, man, I got to vouch for you. If, I, if, you, if you're not a model citizen off the field and you're like every other kid, because if you look at the stats, you know what percentage of kids go to college? In soccer, do you know that? No. Okay, well, I'll, I'll play it out for you. Every year, there's 600 to 800,000 kids playing high school soccer. Okay. Okay, there's another you know, 100, 200,000 kids are playing club soccer. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then there was Academy, which was about 15,000 kids playing soccer. So it's about a million kids playing soccer. They're seniors. A lot. Right? Roughly. Mm. Roughly. Right? Well, every year, there's only about 66,000 to 7,500, depending on the year, freshman positions open in all divisions. Think about it. Count all the all the. I mean, I've actually literally done this. If you count all the colleges that are available, NAIA, Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, on a single year, there's no way you have 24 spots open in a team, right? You got right. juniors, seniors. There's only so many right. freshman positions, so that fluctuates between 6,000 to 7,500 a year. Mm-hmm. On a good year, on a good year is a lot. You know, six to seven, or maybe 8,000. Well, at a million, if six to eight thousand get to go to college, how many? What's the percentage of that? It's less than one tenth of a percent. So, if you're saying you're going to be, if you're going to be less than a one tenth of a percent, and you act like the other ninety nine percent, you got no chance. Yeah, yeah. So that's, a good, that's a good point there. That's a very small, small margin. Of it's making. a very, very small, and you, you better and and. I, I mean, to me, there's only 9.6 or 9.8. There's boys have 9.8 scholarships in soccer for 24 guys. That's how many full rides is available in an in NCAA. Basketball gets 16. Football gets 80. <laughs> football gets 84 rides. So every kid on a football team is a full ride. Soccer, there's only 9.6 amongst 24 players. So if you think you're going to get a full ride, or if you think you're going to get plenty, you, you're insane. Right. <laughs> Nobody's going to give a freshman that hasn't proven anything, unless you're a national team player. So those are the, what we call blue chips. I've had right. a lot of blue chips. But even my blue chips, I don't I, – I, Kenny Walker didn't get a penny freshman year because he had good grades and he got – academic money which means his college coach doesn't have to spend any money mm. from his budget which makes you a com- i mean you, you're a value you're an asset right. imagine you're a good player you're a freshman and you didn't cost your coach anything 
So when I do my deals with the coaches, I say, okay, take care of him over four years. Mm -hmm. If he comes in and he proves to you, so that's how I place good players in good colleges. Because A, I don't demand big money up front. I say, okay, no problem. He's a freshman, let him come in. But if he plays it and he's playing more than your other players, you better take care of him. Are you giving me a word? And they all do. And I say, okay, then reward him over four years. So when parents let me do their negotiation with the coaches, that's how I do it. Because And that's the fairest way. Because he's got to earn it. Why should you give a freshman anything when he hasn't done anything yet? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, right. Right. so it's what you do over four years. Right. I only deal with guys who are stand-up guys. If I don't think a guy's a stand-up guy, I don't send my kid there. That I have to spend my entire life raising him. You know, yeah, no, because then know. you're not you're not helping the kid either, you know, so doing that. No, it's yeah. more than, look, there's more than, I told you, there's, in coaching, there's transactional coaching and there's transformational Transformational. Right. 95% of coaches are transactional. Right. You know, Kenny Lola, Kenny Lola made you a human being and a better student and a better citizen and a mm. better everything, not just a better soccer player. Right. You know, you play for like Bobby in Notre Dame or there's a lot of coaches. I mean, not a lot. There's a handful of guys out there who they're going to make you a better person, not just a better soccer player. Right. And, and, a, and a good soccer player is good at everything. Because if you're not good at everything off the field, you're not a good soccer player. Right. If you You're an awesome, you're good at everything you do, not just soccer. You know, you're a good husband, you're a good neighbor, you're a good citizen, you're mm-hmm. you're good at everything. I mean, so it's it's it's. Have you ever read the book um, Legend? No, I've heard of it though, but I haven't. It's the New Zealand um, All Blacks rugby team, right? And how their culture is, and how they say better people make better blacks. Mm. because you know they'll call the all blacks and mm. you know they their number one rule is if you're the leader you clean the sheds their captains clean the locker room not not you're the highest paid you're the best rugby player in the world and you're cleaning locker rooms and toilets mm. it sounds backwards when you think about it but, out here but it's an honor because you you take the honor because you, you're the best you carry the load and I mean, that's to me is is a great way for winning organizations. You know, not not they don't haze the freshmen that coming in; they celebrate the young people that coming in. I mean, seriously, one of the rules if you you read that book, it says no dickheads. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you if you go to New if you're in all black, you can't be a jerk. If you're drinking and you're womanizing and you're playing off your fame and you're not humble. You won't be on the national team. They'll get rid of you. I like that. They won't. I, like, I like that style that, that they have going on over there. That's good. Make well, better, that's what, don't better you people think that's make missing. better black. Don't, don't you think that's missing, though, in the pro sports? I mean, I, it kills me when I see pro athletes who have everything not be good role models. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. it kills me. It's just like, are you kidding me? You're getting millions of dollars to do what you love. And... You know, I ran into Antonio Brown, man. I'm a huge Steeler fan. I'm mm. a huge because the first football game I ever saw 
was Steelers against Cowboys, 1978. My mm. cousin told me that black team is really good. <laughs> I've, ne- I've never rooted for anybody else but Steelers. So I used to take my kids to Latrobe to preseason. And we were at preseason. My son's a big, big Steelers fan. So I mm. took him to Steelers. And Antonio Brown was, man, he was in a, I, 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 he was in a mall. It was on a Sunday. And my son walked up to him. And he, and he runs to me crying. I go, what happened? He was in a footlocker. And he asked him for an autograph. And he didn't do it. Mm. So I went up to him. And I was like, hey, man, he just bought this little helmet, mini helmet for me to sign him. I went to him. I go, hey, man, you know, my, my kid's crying. You know, do you mind signing? He goes, no, man, it's my day off. I was like, wow. and he put his chest, he put his chest in my face. <laughs> like, I'm like, really, bro? Okay. Right. Yeah, that's terrible. Like, I mean, I mean, I mean, come on. It was I a get it, but I mean, it's a little kid. You know, it's a little kid. You gotta, you gotta do that and just sign it for a little bit. No, I mean, I mean, to me, like, like, I mean, you make millions of dollars, man. One, one kid crying. I mean. I'll never forget, man, I was getting married in Canton. I was getting married in Canton. I'm driving to my wedding. And these little kids see me in a car. <laughs> and we were, I mean, they're like, yeah, yeah. So I stopped and I played quarterback. And they showed, I go, I played quarterback. They were playing football. Like, I had to take my last hike. And Kenny was actually driving me, Kenny Lola. We go to church. At the end of the church, I look in the end of the church. These three kids are sitting in the aisle at my wedding. <laughs> and they came to the wedding. <laughs> Because I threw him past in the in the streets. So, anyways, but um, it's kind of been my journey as a pro and a and a, an American citizen, and it's been an unbelievable. I mean, this country has taught me everything. You can be anything you want to be, right? If absolutely. you believe in what you do and you dream. I mean, you have to dream mm-hmm. and work at it. So, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And right now, I mean, I met Kevin. The guy, same guy that met you. I mean, two years ago. Yeah. yeah. Two years ago, he reached out to me on Twitter. I had about only 2,000 followers, you know, about 35,000 impressions a week. Nothing, you know, I was just tweeting. Mm-hmm. He reached out to me. He goes, hey, man, you want to know how to spread positivity? <laughs> I was like, what? He goes, I've watched your tweets. I, I want you to, you know, here. Here's what you do. Use my content. Put your own words to it. And then when you retweet it, I'll retweet it for you. So no matter what I put, nothing, I wouldn't get any action, but he retweeted. So in a year and a half of spreading positivity, and I mm-hmm. talked to him, and I, I mean, he's the most genuine, nicest person. I mean, I don't know what the Lord just has in my heart. He's a good guy. He's just a good guy. And he knows so many people. Like he contacted you for me. I mean, he, He's told Del about Del Delawitt, you know, about me. You know, he had me on a podcast, and he does it for a lot of people. It's not just me. He knows so many people, and he and I, and he said it to me, and I, about look, we need as Christians to spread positivity, and that right. really hit home at me. So, you know, Twitter is my ministry. I, I you know, through him, now I'm at like. I don't know, last couple of weeks ago, I was like 14 million impressions, mm. you know, in a week. I mean, so he's, and I owe it all to him. I've said it to him, you know, he's really changed my life. And the amount of people now that reach out to you on Twitter that want, hey, you know, and they, like, I had an old lady that, you know, didn't have anybody because of COVID. 
they didn't have anybody to go visit. So every morning on through Twitter, I say hi to her. Right. <laughs> you know, she's in California and just there's so many. And and I owe it all to Kevin. And then he connected me with you, you know. So I'm, the Lord has always put in my heart to tell your story and witness. Yeah. And what I've learned from my faith is, I mean, number one, I mean, being a pro soccer player, you know, when I became, a, I mean, I came baptized in a lake in Peachtree City, Georgia. Mm. When I accepted Christ, I was 40 years old. I've studied all the religions and I consciously knew the story. I understood it. I understood how there was a fall and through the fall, the Lord put the plan in motion. And if you read the Old Testament and the, and the ancient texts, which I've studied the ancient texts and the prophecies and all the, pro there's no way in the world that like Torah is not the word of God. Mm. <laughs> you know, the five chapters, the first five chapters of the Bible, mm -hmm. you know, there's enough manuscripts from all over the world, from different times, word for word, it matches it. There's no way a bunch of people sat and wrote that and they copied it and they could do that from different eras. So I'm convinced of that, mm -hmm. you know, the, the Old Testament and then the story. And I understood it like so through one man, he put the plan in motion to get us back. And, right. and that's right. Jesus, you know, right. if you believe and, and if you believe and my father, my father was like a born again atheist. Mm. I took care of him his last days. He didn't right. have faith. He lost his brother. He lost his, I mean, he lost his son. He lost his wife. He was really angry with God. Right. And right. for hobby, I didn't tell you this, but for hobby, for years, I, I debate atheists and naturalists on Kialu, on Twitter. I used to, I, I debate, I like to debate. I do, I do apologetics. And most people, I've yet to meet a true atheist. Most of them are angry with God. Mm or they're mad at God, <laughs> mm. you know? So, which is me, it's like, how can you be mad or angry at something you say doesn't exist? Doesn't exist, right, right. You know, you need God, you need right. God. Not for something not to exist, it, it, it had to exist. I mean, there's a great, there, it, there's a great book, but it says, I, it takes more faith to be Frank Turek. It takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be, <laughs> it does. It takes strong faith. And I've yet to meet a true, true, true atheist. Most mm. of them are ex-Catholics who some happened to him at the church and they're mm. just mad at God, right? you know, and their hearts are hardened and they don't want to believe. Right. It's not that they don't, they just can't. So I've never had the, I've never had the blessing to harvest. Mm. I plant seeds. You know, I, I know that's what God wants me to do. I just plant seeds. Plant seeds. You're a good man. <laughs> I plant seeds. I plant seeds. And I know somebody else got to water it. Somebody harvests it. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to harvest. I've never been. A, and, you know, maybe one of these days the Lord will bless me that through witnessing and someone would harvest say, Okay, right, I'll right. give my life. Because I have learned. I mean, once you surrender, I mean, becoming a Christian was. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it, but until you really have a relationship and you let them change your heart from inside out, you're not mm. a Christian, right? you know, and that you have to have a relationship with them. So, I mean, I've learned that I'm a baby Christian. I'm only 17 years into it. So I'm ready to go to college now, you know, just leave it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. But yeah, no, no we definitely, feel. uh, uh, we definitely have, I think, uh, 
you know, we have more, I think, a religious conversation to have. I would love to have another one. We have sure. Uh, we have Anytime more. We, want, have, we have more soccer stuff because I, I definitely have some sure. questions for you regarding the game. Uh, sure. We got to we got to talk. Obviously, we got to talk Manchester United. Uh, you know, my so, team. Yeah, my team as well. So we definitely, I think, it's a good little introduction. Do you have? Both do, you have do, you, do you have rubber ducks, Manchester United? I own two rubber ducks. When they win, the black rubber duck comes out in my shower. When they're oh. losing, the red one comes out. <laughs> yeah, when, I'm, not... <laughs> I'm just pissed when they're losing, and it's not just losing; it's just when you're playing bad and you're losing. I hate. Right. I hate terrible soccer. I don't even mind. Like, I get it. We all can win every game. But if I see you right. play the right way and you lose, at least I can be like, okay, you know, like, I can be mad with loss, but not angry. <laughs> well, we, we've been we've been struggling for years since Al, Sir Alex left. Yeah. So, oh, I think finally Ole would get it right, though. But, yeah, I mean, the last few years have not been fun being a Manchester United fan. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. right, brother. All right, my man, Kia. I appreciate it. It was definitely well, good. It was definitely a good uh, all-around conversation just you to listen to you talk it. about life and uh, share some of your experiences and definitely hearing how you're doing with kids and getting all these, all these guys to the pros, man, and living a good mark. So I know we're going to have a lot more conversation. Uh, I know we're going to link up some more and talk I some more. I look forward to it. So absolutely, man. Thank you so much for uh, making this happen today. Okay. God bless you, brother. All right, Kia. Okay. God bless you. Thank uh, you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Point Noted Podcast with Johnny B and Rashad B. Follow us on Twitter at PT Noted and Instagram at Point Noted. Hit the subscribe and follow button to follow us and check out more episodes of us talking a whole bunch of shit. You've been noted.